Good evening. Is Lower being on this side tonight? Jeff and Lisa are, are still out of town and they're getting some time away. And so a couple months ago, Jeff asked me, Nicole, would you be willing to speak on, on Wednesday night, August 4th? And I, I'm like, okay. I make it a point that any time the Lord asks me to do something, I step out in faith, right? Even if I don't feel equipped or qualified, I say, God, if this is what you're asking me to do, I'm going to step out in faith. And so as I prayed about tonight, as I prayed about, Lord, what is it that you want me to talk about? He kept giving me this, these two words, beholding and becoming. And I'm like, well, that's, that's great, Lord, but what does that mean? What does that mean? And so as I began to seek him on this, he led me very clearly to Genesis 30. And so I want you guys to turn with me there to Genesis 30. I'm going to be covering a lot of scripture tonight, so bear with me. Um, there's just a lot of goodness in the word. Amen. So Genesis 30, we're going to pick it up where Joseph has already left his family. He is now living. I'm sorry, not Joseph, Jacob. Jacob has already left his family, and he is now living with Laban. He has already married Leah, Laban's first daughter. He has married Rachel. He's already worked for them. And we're at this season where Jacob is yet again ready to go. He's ready to leave Laban's household. He's worked for him for over 14 years, and he's ready to, to start anew. So we're going to pick it up in Genesis 30, verse 25. I'm giving us a little backstory here. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children, for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I have done for you. But Laban said to him, I have found favor. If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he added, Name your wages and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I go do something for my own household? What shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check the wages you have paid for me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. It'll let it be as you have said. That same day, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted, and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. And then he put a three days journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. This is where it starts to get good, verse 37. Jacob, however took fresh-cut branches from the poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. And then he placed the peeled branches and all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches, and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals, 
Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate nearby the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones went to Jacob. And this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So looking at verse 37, we see that Jacob set up branches that were streaked and spotted in a visible place for these animals. It was where they were drinking on a regular basis. It was the place where they went to mate. He put the branches before their eyes. It'd be what they saw every time they go get a drink. And the animals were not aware of this, obviously. They were just reproducing what they were seeing without even being aware of it. And I think this is such a profound biblical principle that what we behold, what we look at on a consistent basis, even when we're not thinking about it, is what we're going to reproduce in our life. What we spend time on and see in our day-to-day lives is what we begin to emulate. We see that Jacob was intentional about which animals he wanted to see the branches. He picked the strongest. He picked the best, right? And so that begged me to ask the question, am I intentional, are we intentional, about what we're sitting before our eyes on a regular basis, on a day-to-day basis? Because what we're looking at, what we're setting our attention on, it matters. Proverbs 4.25 says, Let your eyes look directly ahead of you and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Where you look is where you're going to go. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. And Psalm 101.3 says, I will set nothing before my eyes or I will set before my eyes I will not set before my eyes anything worthless. Third time's a charm. I will not set before my eyes anything worthless. So are we intentional about what we're setting before our eyes? Are we intentional about being in the word of God on a daily basis? Are we intentional about worshiping and spending time with the Lord and praying on a regular basis? It can be so easy to go through the motions of our life. You know, you wake up and you've got a whole list of things you've got to do. You've got to work. You've got to go run errands. You've got to go do this. You've got to go do that. And I think so often we forget to ask for God's guidance or be aware of his presence as we come in, as we go out. And we have an opportunity to talk to God throughout our day. There are moments in our day, every day, each one of us, where they're kind of like moments we don't have to engage our brain. You know those autopilot moments where maybe you're driving or you're just doing a task you do on a regular basis and you're not thinking about what you're doing and your brain's kind of wondering. And those are the moments that we get to turn our minds, turn our wandering, turn our thoughts toward the Lord. Those little moments every day that we can steal away while we're driving and, oh, I'm just going to pray for so-and-so today. Or while we're driving, oh, God, that verse this morning was really good. I'm going to meditate on that verse today or or listen to worship music. When we start to look for ways to incorporate God in our day-to-day, it's the small things that can really make a big difference. You know, like if we have a really important meeting or important 
thing we've got to go to, we, we can immediately just stop and say, God, I pray for your wisdom today. I pray for clarity in this situation. Seek God or, or even doing, again, menial tasks, check, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, doing things you've got to do around the house, checking with God. God, God, how are you today? Do you have anything you want to tell me right now? Like it's those moments, those day-to-day things where we can invite God in. And it's not really hard once we figure out those moments when we have that free time in our mind, right? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. As Christians, we get to live lives of saturation and immersion. God told the parents that their home must be saturated or immersed in God. Speaking about God daily. In verse 7, it says, talk about it when you sit at home, when you walk, or in our case, probably drive. When you get ready for bed, when you wake up. These are the moments where we begin to set Jesus before our eyes. Those little things every day where we're coming in to take a drink like those animals and we see, we set Jesus before our eyes. And what we're beholding is what we're going to become. In Mark 12, 28, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is the one that we just read about in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Starting in verse 28, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Our lives as Christians is not about checking all the right boxes and doing all the right things. It's about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. It's about setting his word. It's about setting him before our eyes and fixing our eyes on him. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 9. Colossians 2, 6 through 9, it says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In verse 6, we see that our lives are to be rooted 
and built up in him. How do we do that? We set our thoughts on him. We set our eyes on him. We run to his word. We renew our mind. We invite him into all day, every day. In verse 9, it says we are full of Christ. We have what we need in him. I think discipline is such an important part of our walk with Christ. It's important that we have those daily habits, those daily disciplines of getting into his word and daily time in prayer, time in worship. But discipline for discipline's sake is just vanity. It's just working. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, it says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Our life as Christians is not about following all the rules or following all the traditions. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's about engaging our hearts and being transformed into the image of his son by continually fixing our eyes on him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It can be so easy to get caught up in the cares of our life, but every time we have an opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look at Colossians 3, 1 and 2. It says, Since then you have been raised in Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. It doesn't mean that we walk around in this world without a care for what's going on around us. It means we get to look above the happenings of this world around us to our Savior, our Creator, our Healer, our Defender, our Redeemer. We get to take a glimpse of His view his perspective. And we see this really clearly in 2 Kings 6, 15 through 7. This is about Elisha. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What I love about this is Elisha could see what God was doing. He was looking beyond what was right in front of him, and he saw God's view. He saw God's perspective. So we get to live in the world and not of the world. We get to stand out. We get to become like what we're beholding. We get to emulate Jesus and show those around us who do not know him 
what it's like to believe in him, what it's like to have his hope, to be sure of him, to have his peace, to have his joy, his forgiveness, his healing. But it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? We can see the chaos and the storms of life. We can see the army surrounding us, so to speak. Turn with me to Matthew 14, verse 22. And this takes place directly after Jesus fed the 5,000. And he fed the 5,000 from five loaves of bread and two fish. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And then he climbed into the boat, and the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Just a few hours before this, the disciples had just seen Jesus perform an amazing miracle. And they went across the lake, and as soon as a storm came up, they were terrified. They had just seen the power of God. They had just seen miraculous things, and then were distracted by the storm around them. And they also were afraid of what they could not explain in their own human mind of someone walking on water. So they came to their own logical conclusion. It's a ghost, right? Because walking on water is impossible for us, right? But we serve a God of impossibilities. It can be so easy to forget what God has done in our lives when we're faced with the storm, when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with chaos. And just like they'd forgot what Jesus had done, they saw something that was overwhelming and terrifying, and they were afraid. And they didn't realize that what they were actually seeing was God displaying Jesus' authority over the storm, over the sea, over the water. And we see here that Peter wanted to believe Jesus. He was the only one. He's like, God, Jesus, if this is you, call me out into the water. And when Jesus did, he obeyed. And as long as he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water. But when he looked at the circumstances of the storm around him, he began to sink. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And it's so easy to look away 
from God at the circumstances around us that are so overwhelming and seem impossible. They weren't supposed to ignore the storm around them, right? They were to seek God and ask for his guidance, to ask for his wisdom, to ask for his help. They were to fix their eyes on him. And the storms of this life are reality that we live in here on this earth. But our God is a God of impossible things. And there is a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly mindset we get to fix our minds upon daily. In Matthew 6, verse 25, Matthew 6, 25, says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon and all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We have the privilege of talking to God as often as we want, of being in his word as often as we put the time and energy into it. And we get to worship as often as we want. When I look at David in the Psalms, he was such an amazing example of living a life that was about seeking God and trusting God and wanting to behold God. From the day David was a finally anointed king, it took 15 years it took 15 years from when he was chosen as the anointed to when he was finally seen as king. And in that time, he had to run from Saul. He had to fight battles that he did not instigate. But his heart was always set on God and God's promises. Turn with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 
One thing I have asked from the Lord, and only this do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him and his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me upon, high upon a rock. In verse 8, he says, My heart says to you, says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Verse 11, he says, teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in a path because of my oppressors. In verse 13, he says, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The journey to God's promises and his, his callings in our life are always going to be filled with twists and turns. David didn't even ask to be anointed king. David was a shepherd boy who loved to worship God. He loved to spend time with God. Moses didn't ask to be a leader. In fact, he asked God to send somebody else because he didn't feel qualified. And we're all going to find ourselves in seasons of life we didn't ask for. But we know and we can trust that when God allows us to go through a season, he's going to be right there with us in our midst, and he's going to bring us through it. So we get to then follow David's example and seek God. And what I personally find so encouraging about David is he was always real with God. If you look through the Psalms, he starts out with like, oh, these enemies are chasing me. This is happening and that is happening. All these struggles, all these personal struggles, and he was continually asking for God's help. But then he always, if you notice toward the end of almost every Psalm, he begins to shift and say, but God, but you, O oh Lord, he turns his view from where he's at to the reality of God. He's honest with the Lord. God, this is what I'm going through. This is hard. This is my struggle. And yet he also then says, but you are holy. You are worthy. You can conquer everything. He begins to shift that. In verse 11, he asks God, teach me your ways. David learned how to live a life looking to God fixing his eyes on God. He learned how to live in two realities. He learned to see the chaos of the world around him and the reality that he was living in, and he also learned to fix his eyes on God into the heavenly view, God's view. He knew who God was. He knows who God is. And we can then live in this earth, in this world, and ask God for the faith of who he really is in his kingdom while still seeing what's going on in our lives. In Mark 9, verse 20, a father asked Jesus to heal his young son who was demon-possessed. Starting in verse 20, Mark 9. 
It says, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed and the, the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And when Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is such a great prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We can live in a mindset of seeking God, his will, his plan, his kingdom, while not yet seeing the results of what we're praying for, what we're believing for. And it's okay to ask God for the faith to believe him, to believe what he says he's going to do. We see this in Philippians 2, verse 13. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. God can give us the desire to do his will and the grace to do it. What an amazing God. He meets us right where our faith is. And he's always available to guide us and to lead us. Psalm 16, verse 7. Psalm 16, verse 7. It says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Because you do not abandon me in the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. God is ready and willing to make his will and his truth, his path, his plan known to each one of us when we reach out to him. We just must remember to fix our eyes on Jesus as he directs our path. Matthew 6.22 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
I know I've covered a lot of scripture tonight. So I just want to maybe break it down for us in a few simple things, a few simple takeaways. What we look at, what we behold on a day-to-day basis, on a regular basis, is what we're going to produce. It's what we're, who we're going to become. If we are busy filling our minds with news, with social media, articles on our phones, we're going to produce those things in our lives. And not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but we need to think about our priorities as Christians and think about Lord, who do you want us to become? And we want to behold him. We want to seek him to lead us, to show us who we are in him. So what we behold is what we'll become. The second thing that we talked about was that we get to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And that ties into the beholding because when we, when we love him with all of our mind and our heart and our soul and our strength, he's going to be what we set before our eyes. He's going to be what we consume our minds with. Third, we talked about setting our hearts on things above. We talked about looking to his kingdom, his plan, his view, his view over what we see in the world around us, His purpose over what we see here on earth. We talked about Philippians 2, that God is the one who can give us the desires and the strength to do his will. It's not something we have to muster up on our own accord. We can say, God, I don't know how to do this. Lord, will you help me? Give me the desire to want to do this. Give me the strength to do this, Lord. And the last thing I just read, you make known to me the path of life. God gives us wisdom as we seek him. One step at a time, moment by moment, God gives us wisdom. He gives us clarity. He gives us direction for each and every day. Let me just pray for us tonight. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. Lord, that you're calling us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, that you're calling us to set our gaze, to fix our eyes on you day to day, in the comings and in the goings, in our home, in our lives, Lord, in those moments that we can so easily fill with mindless junk, God. You're calling us to be intentional. Lord, to, to realize that we have all of you. As we receive Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. We have all of you living inside of us, Lord. And we can invite you into our moments every day. 
We can invite you into the little things and the big things. There's nothing too small to talk to you about. There's nothing too big or too great for you, Lord. But you're asking us to step out in faith, to set our eyes with your perspective and your view. Lord, you're challenging us to seek you, to ask for wisdom, to ask for your strength. God, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, Lord. Lord, we thank you for these gentle reminders tonight, and I just pray as we leave this place and as we, we go about our day-to-day -day lives tonight and tomorrow, Lord, that we would hear your still, small voice speaking to us, God, that our hearts would quicken to invite you in to those free moments we have when our minds start to wander, Lord, that we can talk to you, that we can pray, that we can meditate on your word. God, that we could take time to worship, to be in awe of who you are. Lord, I thank you that our Christian life doesn't have to be about checking all the boxes and working really hard to earn anything, God. You freely gave. And now we just get to moment by moment, day by day, look to you to fix our eyes on you and behold you so that we can become more like your son. We just thank you for that, Lord. And it is in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here with us tonight. Jeff and Lisa are going to be back on Sunday. So we look forward to seeing you then, or we'll see you next week. Have a great night.